Hello out there. This is Pamela Fagan Hutchins, and you found Wine, Women, and Writing. This is the show where I enjoy talking to other writers about their books, their characters, and I gotta admit, especially about their complex, authentic female characters. So today I am, well, frankly, I'm pretty darn excited about my guest. Before I tell you who she is, I have to do my solemn duty and tell you that this is a solely owned and copyrighted production of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, with many thanks to our producer, Pam Stack. Now on to the good stuff. This guest has not only the patience of Job, but she is a six-time Anthony Award winner. Uh, Seamus winner. If there's an award, she's won it. Lifetime Achievement with Private Eye Writers of America, Grandmaster from Mystery Writers of America. Um, but not only that, as I said, she's a really patient and very nice person. I want to welcome today, Marsha Mueller. Marsha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, you know, you guys out there, this is not the first time that Marsha and I've tried to talk to each other. I think I've lost count. Do you know how many times we've tried and failed? <laughs> It's probably I'm not sure how many times <laughs> it's been terrible, and she's been so nice throughout the whole thing. Uh, I got the opportunity to preview her latest Sharon McCone mystery, um, Ice and Stone, recently, and the chance to talk to her, and I was not going to let it slip through my fingers. So I'm going to tell you guys one story before I turn it over to mostly to Marsha for her stories. But as a young, um, a young attorney, actually, when I was on the road traveling all the time for work, I used to go to our public library, and uh, this was in the Fort Worth area in Texas, and just browse the audiobooks, looking for something that was going to keep my attention when I was driving to and from clients. And I found this incredible book called one of the iron shoes, which turned out to be the beginning of my love affair with Sharon McCone and with Marsha. And suddenly I loved traveling and couldn't wait um, to get in my car and would sit in the parking lot listening to these cassette tapes of her stories with dark outside and, you know, missing dinner. So uh, I want to thank you for that, Marsha. You, you gave me so many years and, you know, hours and years of enjoyment. Oh, that's very flattering to hear. Um, I hope I didn't make you miss too many dinners. <laughs> I probably needed to miss more, but <laughs> it was fantastic for me. And when I told my um, uh, my followership that I was going to be speaking to you, now load these many months ago, when I first got a copy of Ice and Stone, the reaction was probably the biggest reaction I've ever had when I said I'm speaking to someone there were a lot of people that were so excited and saying, you know, I can't wait to hear what she's up to. And, you know, I can't wait to read something new. And then that piggybacked onto people who were new to you. So I think we have a real mixed group out there. Um, and because of that, even though we're here to talk about the 35th, I think the 35th, um, Sharon McCone book. I'd love for you guys, you to start by just telling people about Sharon and the series in general. Um, Sharon appeared to me in um, 1975, I think, as a character who was simply not going to get out of my head. 
and um, she, <laughs> her name is kind of amusing. It, her first name is the name of my freshman roommate and close friend, and McCone is after the then head of the CIA, John McCone. Oh, that's funny. That was a little joke. And a couple of years later, I got a letter from John McCone's daughter who said, yeah, he he really liked it. He was flattered. And I said, well, thank God I didn't offend the head of the CIA. <laughs> you don't want to get the CIA mad at you. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so when she first came to you, did you was Edwin of the Iron Shoes the first time you wrote her, or had you written short no. stories first? Actually, I wrote two manuscripts before that. One which will never see the light of day, <laughs> and uh, a second that I put aside, and it became the second book, which is Ask the Cards a Question. Yes. I, I love the titles, by the way. You know, I think that's what what originally drew me to the first few books in the series, Edwin of the Iron Shoes, Ask the Cards a Question, uh -huh. Pennies for a Dead Man's Eyes, I think. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, yeah. And so I was so fascinated by the, by the titles. And so the, the original manuscripts, one of them became number two. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, the first one was a big trial and error, and it really wasn't Sharon at all, but we changed how did, that. How did you come to find the real Sharon? Was she somebody that you suddenly just knew that you knew? Was she like a best friend, a little sister, an alter ego? How did you come into her? She just came to me. And, you know, I knew I wanted to write a private eye novel. And I thought, well, why not a woman? That would be different. Of course, that's not different anymore. But <laughs> she um, kind of blossomed into my mind. And, you know, she's been sitting on my shoulder dictating to me ever since. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, after 35 books... I, I was wondering when she gets back on your shoulder and says it's time for another book, are you like slapping her away going, leave me alone, leave me alone? Or is it more like welcoming back a, uh, a dear friend? It's more or less welcoming back. Um, I try to rein her in and say, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> and usually she gets away. <laughs> well, she got her way with ice and stone. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about this 35, 35th installment in the series. Um, ice and stone was inspired by my clipping file. For years, I had been clipping articles about missing or murdered indigenous women. And I'd never quite gotten a handle on how to deal with it. But, you know, over time, it became apparent that Sharon should investigate this. And it couldn't be she would investigate the whole, oh, 20, 30 years of this going on 
but could investigate two specific cases in California. It's interesting to me living in an area, I live in Wyoming, living in an area mm-hmm. where we're sandwiched between um, a couple of reservations and the, where there's a strong, um, you know, indigenous presence, how mm-hmm. large the plight is of, or it's an epidemic of missing, um, uninvestigated and never solved cases of indigenous young girls and women. And so for me, when I opened this book and saw that that was where it was going, it was very powerful that you chose this topic. Uh, I, I think that, that having Sharon look into it too felt very, very right to me. Yeah, given her native heritage, which right. she discovered in oh, books and books back, I think Listen to the Silence was when she undertook to find out her roots. And to grow up as she did um, in a very, very, very not Native American household, but in a <laughs> Scottish, I believe, household, and then to discover who she really was at her inception. Also very powerful. Yeah, it, it was very hurtful for her because she'd been lied to her whole life. Mm-hmm. And she had a lot of anger toward her adoptive family and then discovered a whole new family who more or less... Um, fit in with hers. They all became great friends afterwards. I, I, I am on a hunt for my husband's great, great grandmother, who is Arapaho. And ah. looking into Native American roots that date back to the late 1800s turns out to be extremely difficult because she was adopted much like Sharon, but earlier in time, um, Mm -hmm. and lost that part of her heritage. So my husband's now doing DNA testing so we can try to find the family through other means. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. So as you should work, we didn't have it back. Yeah. You know, when I was first starting the series, there was no such thing. Well, you know, and I think that that makes life more suspenseful and mysterious too. all the technology we have these days answers questions before we know we have them sometimes. So (laughs) that's interesting to me how what's available to Sharon as an investigator has changed over time, even as she has not aged as fast as the rest of us. (laughs) Well, the technology has actually complicated things because it's altogether too easy to get Uh, information on anyone through any number of sources. So I've had to delegate most of that to her nephew, Mick, who is a computer geek. And he supplies basic stuff. Then there have to be other complications to make it anything worth investigating. It's true. It's true. I, I'm currently writing a series I've set back in the 70s just to get away from that. It makes me want to just write historical mysteries, you know? Well, they are historical. You know, it's, it's funny to have been writing back then 
And to realize that half of your work is historical. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I liked too that, um, that because in this setting, she's in, tell me if I'm saying this right, Marouk, or how do you say the county name? I think it's Marouk. Um, the name of the tribe was something different, but the authenticator at my publisher suggested that because it wasn't too evocative of other tribes who might take offense. That Yeah, that makes sense. And, and it's a remote, poverty-stricken location where Sharon is left to her own devices without staying in this cabin in extreme weather. And so she doesn't have technology at her fingertips and can only call on it occasionally. So you're able to create that isolation that that builds such great suspense. Yeah, well, the county doesn't exist either. So (laughs) I have a habit of opening up spaces in California and sticking places in them that aren't there. Well, that brings up one of the things I've I've really enjoyed about your books is that while some of them are, like you said, opened up spaces that may not have been there, they they bear some relation to the geography, you know, et cetera. And in some ways, your series reads like a love letter to Northern California. Do you have? Yeah, I guess we could say that. um, I'd love to travel around and find new places or go places that I didn't think I would ever get to and just explore them and and fictionalize them. So you do travel to the inspiration for the locations in your book and, and love them in oh, person. Oh, yeah. Yes, in person. Oh, I love and, that. And, you know, I take notes and tape comments and you know, get to know places that I might otherwise not have gone. Well, certainly Marouk County was, came to very, very vivid life. And, and, and as a book where, she, where Sharon was looking into missing Indigenous women, it really highlighted not only the plight of missing Indigenous women, but in general, people living in rural poverty as well. And that was so stark and, uh, and and added such a nice element to me for the story. Oh, good. Then I got it right. You got it right. And so do you have a favorite location that you've fictionalized over the years in the book? Is there a, a fictional Northern California that you've created that is your favorite? Well, there is a place called Tufa, that's T-U-F-A, Lake which is over the Sierras and in a place very suspiciously like Mono Lake. And uh, I fictionalized it while leaving it essentially where it is. But that's a fascinating area. It is an area that, from reading your books, I also thought was really fascinating. And one that my husband and I, when we were driving through the Sierras, were actually talking about and wondering, were we close? Are we far away from where you placed it? So, (laughs) you know, you not only wrote mysteries I enjoyed, but you got, you sparked an interest in Northern California. So one of the things that fascinated me 
as I've read more about you was that you've done quite a bit of, I think, co-writing with your husband as well. Um, yes, we have done one short, short series together, which are the Carpenter and Quincannon books, and they're historical and take place mainly in San Francisco. They're um, a man and a woman who share a detective agency, and those were really a lot of fun to do. We also wrote another called The Lighthouse, set in a abandoned lighthouse on the North Coast. And that was more difficult because we weren't using serious characters whom we knew so well. That that actually makes sense. And do you enjoy writing solo or co-writing more? I'm sorry? Do you enjoy writing get... by yourself or, or co-writing with your husband, who I should tell you guys is no slouch in the mystery world, Bill Bronzini. Um, but do you <laughs> enjoy co-writing or solo writing more? You know, it, it just depends. Um, usually, when I do a book solo, Bill will also, you know, at home edit it first before it goes off to the publisher. So I get a lot of input from him on that, and I read his pages and give him input. So it's really like a little family business. I love that. And what a fantastic, um, uh, your home, your homegrown, um, uh, I want to say, you know, not co-writing, but collaborator, somebody that... Mm -hmm knows your characters and can come in and say, this is fantastic, or have you thought of this, or just give you encouragement and support and knows what they're talking about. That's, that's pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I now, couldn't do it without him. <laughs> oh, I love that. Do you, do you anticipate that Sharon is going to be back on your shoulder, begging for your attention anytime soon? Do you plan to continue listening to her and writing her, or or what's next for, for you? Well, she's on my shoulders right now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I have just started the next book in the series, which is called Circle in the Water. And that will take place mainly in San Francisco because I do have to bring her home occasionally. <laughs> I'm excited. So, uh, I, you know, there may be no end in sight for Sharon, which is good news for all of us. And when I got to tell you guys that when I was writing secretly in my 20s and 30s, one of the things that was the biggest influence to me by, from Marsha and her Sharon was that as you can tell from listening to us talk about Ice and Stone, she's not only broke ground by writing a female PI that was solving exciting mysteries, but she wove in that you could keep that tension going while caring about issues, while caring about humankind and the planet and everything else. And I, I think for me, that's what's made you stand out more than anybody else was that Sharon was an activist. She was a humanist. She was all these, you know, a feminist, she was all these wonderful things at the same time as you didn't sacrifice pace 
and thrills and all the rest of it. So for that and so much more, Marsha, thank you so much for the impact you've had on all of us. Well, that's great to hear. She does have her opinions, you know, (laughs) and she keeps me informed. (laughs) She keeps you informed of them? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I loved Very it. Very much. <laughs> I loved it. Well, I thank you so much for your patience, for your fourth or fifth try being on the show today. We've succeeded. And I can't wait to read the next one. Okay. Well, it's coming along. <laughs> good. Good. We won't rush you. And for you guys, if you haven't already gone out and read Ice and Stone, I want you to treat yourself to that. But if you haven't started at the beginning, at the inception of Sharon McCone, go back and fill in the gaps. Edwin of the Iron Shoes, run it up all the way across the table and up through Ice and Stone. And for uh, the shows that are upcoming or to catch past shows, you can head out to my website, PamelaFaganHutchins.com, where you can catch recordings or read the books for the upcoming shows so that you'll be really in the know when I talk to our next author, Marsha. Thank you so much for being here. And the rest of you guys, go out and read a great book and have an even better week.